Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale August 4th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. I can't believe it's August already. More importantly, Tucker, we are celebrating What If Month, a whole oh, month yeah. of What If ish content we're going to be uh talking to some really great people who's our guest this week today for our reading club we're talking to the one and only ralph macchio marvel legend who was at the company for decades and who was closely involved with what if during that time so he's the perfect person to go dive into the original what if series on ryan it really felt like just all your dreams coming true Look, it's going to be a great month. We're going to have a bunch of great episodes, great guests. So uh, any listeners out there who are fans of the What If books, let us know. Use hashtag Marvel's Pull List. What are your favorite What If stories? We'll share some of those as we go along through the month. Please make sure you include in your tweets that it is okay to read on the show. We'll look out for those. And of course, this is all in celebration and support of Marvel Studios What If, available exclusively on Disney+. Plus. I don't know what I'm allowed to say in terms of what I've seen, but I will say that I think Marvel Studios What If is my favorite MCU thing, period. Wow. It it both makes sense, but it is also impressive that it's lived up to your what if expectations. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It is that and more. And it is so, yeah. I don't know what I'm allowed to say. So I'm just going <laughs> to get there. on and remind everybody that this show is all about the new Marvel comics on sale this week. We're going to run through our picks. We're going to give out awards for a bunch of other comics. Tucker, as our official award namer on the show, will uh, let us know what our awards are this week. We will get to telling you all about the collections on sale this week and books that are hitting Marvel Unlimited. Just looking at the list now. It's a great week on MU, so we'll get into that. Of course, we'll get into our discussion with Ralph Macchio later in the show. I want to give a quick shout out to one of our very dedicated listeners, Karis Pollard, who consistently, week in, week out, posts her pull list. And like last week from when we were recording, she had nine books on her her list, uh, like some really great issues. We appreciate you supporting the show and Marvel and everybody else who listens too. So thank you. With that in mind, let's dive into the new books. First up, one of our picks of the week is Deadpool Black, White, and Blood, number one. There are certain issues of Black, White, and Blood that are like, you know who's going to like this? That Agent M cat. He's going (laughs) to like it a lot. And do I ever. It's the next in our series of Black, White, and Blood books where the stories are all in black and white, and the only color that is used is red, often because these are bloody brutal stories, but sometimes it's costumes. Of course, this is a Deadpool book, so you're going to get a lot of red in Deadpool's costume. There are three stories in here. The first is called Red All Over by Tom Taylor and Phil Noto with letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Come on, Tom Taylor and Phil Noto, like I said, made for me. I love pretty much everything Tom does and his run on the stories of Laura Kinney, a.k.a. Wolverine, a.k.a. X-23, and Gabby, a.k.a. Honey Badger, a.k.a. Scout, some of my favorites of all time. So we get a team-up between Gabby and Deadpool in this issue, and it is hilarious, and it is sweet and heartbreaking, where a bunch of animals have become zombies, and the two of them have to put down a bunch of zombie animals, and it's really adorable. It's funny. It is very straightforward 
wonderful action comedy with two of the most unlikely best friends in Marvel comics, a clone of a clone and the Merc with a mouth. I love the story a ton. And Phil Noto, Phil Noto draws some of the prettiest things in the world, but you also are reminded in this, he can draw gruesome, gross, wonderful horror at the same time. It is tremendous. The second story is written by Ed Brisson, whom I love, wonderful Canadian man. Wills Portacio, one of my favorite artists as I was getting into comics in the early 90s. Wills Portacio has some of my favorite moments in X Factor, most importantly, including what I've talked about before, the greatest handshake in Marvel Comics, when Black Bolt and Cyclops, muscles exploding and rippling, the two of them grip hands and Wills drew the hell out of that page. And so seeing Wills Portacio come on here with uh, Rochelle Rosenberg on colors, who is come on, Rochelle, legend, and uh, Joe Sabino as well on the letters, it's just tremendous. Uh, we get this wonderful story where Wade is on the hunt for the only VHS copy of a B. Arthur movie that he can't find on streaming. And it is hilarious and it is brutal. And Wills does some very wet worksy, gnarly, visceral action throughout this. And then the third story is pure Agent M fodder. It is a full story written, drawn, and lettered by James Stokoe. He's among my favorite comic book storytellers these days. It is about Omega Red, who has created his own country inside Canada, and Deadpool comes to visit the country. You get Ursa Major, you get uh, members of Alpha Flight. It's funny as hell. It's silly. It is incredibly explosive, detailed, wonderful. This is a perfect comic for me. So, so good. I loved it as well. But now we're jumping over to my pick this week which is Immortal Hulk number 49, the penultimate issue of one of the most storied and celebrated runs in recent years. This is, of course, written by Al Ewing with pencils by Joe Bennett, inks by Roy Jose and Bellardino Bravo, colors by Paul Mounts, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Right off the bat, I mean, we've talked about Al and Joe, and rightfully so. I hasten to add, though, and I, and I want to make sure that this name is added and right alongside the Pantheon when we talk about Immortal Hulk in hindsight, when we look back on this huge achievement, and that's Paul Mounts, colorist. Just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. It really says a lot that at every single moment, you feel like you're in the room. You feel like you're walking right alongside these characters. You feel the energy. You feel the atmosphere. So thank you, thank you, thank you to the entire creative team and thank you to Paul Mounts for his incredible work over the course of this entire series. This is a very fascinating and very unique issue. And it's one that I think very few comics do. And what I mean by that is sort of reformats comic book art in a way, um, because throughout the entire issue, there are these sort of sidebars that contain prose text. And that's where the story is told. It's not told in dialogue. It's told long form writing by Al Ewing um, that is accompanied in the middle by the incredible art that we know and love. We still have our huge, enormous signature at this point when it comes to Joe Bennett and Immortal Hulk splash pages. But this is a quiet, 
thoughtful issue. And that is all fed by the work that Al's doing. It's all fed by the prose. It's all fed by the fact that there's a certain separation between the words and the art that is both illustrating the words, but it also feels like the words are are commentary in a way. I, I love this issue. This is certainly one that I would put more into our spoiler categories as we finish up what has been such a big series here. But there are certain characters that I love seeing Joe Bennett interpretation of. I think it's beautiful. I don't want to say which ones those are because that's sort of getting into spoiler territory. And I would highly recommend this being one that you just go in cold and just just read it. But yeah, just beautiful stuff. And somehow it still managed to surprise me. It still managed to pick up pace in these certain moments that jolt you into excitement, into action. And as we now head into the final issue of this incredible run. I'm sure we're going to be talking more and more about the legacy of Immortal Hulk as the power of this story grows and grows and grows, as I definitely anticipate it to. What a run it's been, and uh, I'm psyched for that finale. What a great series. I'm sad it's going to come to a close, but I am very thankful we got 50-plus issues, if you count all the the bonuses, of Immortal Hulk. Uh, We'll lament its passing in October. Now we've got one more pick for this week, and it's also written by al ewing it is guardians of the galaxy annual number one with art by flaviano colors by rochelle rosenberg letters by vc's Corey pettit this is another one of our annuals which has two stories in it one is the infinite destiny story possibly looking at one of the infinity stone wielders as well as the next chapter of the nick fury story where we're following jed mckay and juan ferreira as they tell this nick fury story he's trying to he's solving a mystery and in this point in that tale fury has been brainwashed and it's trippy and it's kind of sad for Nick and it's beautifully done. But the main story is really like the core of why I wanted to choose this issue because it's just so wacky and wonderful. Al can do anything and he proves that he can do pretty much anything at any given time. Here, you've got Hercules sitting in a space bar, having himself a juice because he's not drinking. He's like living his good life. He's really come to terms with who he is. And in falls the Prince of Power. And you're like, but Hercules is the Prince of Power. That's been a moniker for Hercules for 30-odd, 40 years, whatever it is. Well, this young upstart has been using the name Prince of Power. And we know that he holds the Power Stone. He swallowed it. He became super powerful. But this is the origin story of the Prince of Powerful, a.k.a. Prince Other One of Noblor, which is... He's all just a big satire, really, of Masters of the Universe-style cartoons and big superhero tropes. The Masters of the Universe-ness of this is tremendous. I haven't watched the new cartoon yet, which I do want to because my pal Mark Bernardin is a writer on that show, and it looks like a hoot. But, you know, I grew up with Masters of the Universe. I assume Masters of the Universe, He-Man and all that stuff was a little before your time, Tucker. Yeah, I think so. Oh, it's too bad. Those <laughs> were some toys. I had so many of those Masters of the Universe toys as a kid. And so reading this, 
story where you're fine Prince Other One of Noblor and his tale and how he came to be and the world that he lives in and all his villains and his family and stuff. Man, I was dying. It was really funny. It's very over the top. It's very satirical, but it's gorgeous. It's big fights, big silliness. It is a tremendous, wonderful breath of fresh air when you're also reading, you know, stories about Dormammu taking over Ego, the living planet, and trying to destroy everything. I can't recommend this one enough. Please give this a try. It's Guardians of the Galaxy Annual Number 1. Great stuff this week, as usual. We're going to dive into more of it right now with all the new Marvel Comics heading your way this week. And uh, the award we're going to hand out to them is the Pull List Kissed Award. Because these books are so good, you want to purchase them? At your local comic shop, take them outside, remove your mask, and give them a big old wet smooch. Uh, And we're kicking off our smoochies with Avengers number 47, which is a part of World War She-Hulk. This is part two of that. You know, it's a team book, and there's a skill to writing a team book. That's a different task than writing a solo superhero book. But what I've really enjoyed about that fact is those issues, those certain moments throughout these 47 issues that are emotionally on one character. Give one character a spotlight. And in this issue, it's obviously it's Jen Walters because this is World War She-Hulk, but it's also Captain Marvel gets a great, great story in here that's really cool and just gets to take the spotlight in that way. I just love it. World War She-Hulk is a ton of fun, big throwdown Avengers comics. Really, really, really fun. All right, up next is Extreme Carnage Lasher number one, and it gets my pull list kissed award for the birth of a new character. You'll see that character in here. I say nothing more in terms of spoilers, but uh, they rise in this issue, and it means bad things for some people. Very vague. (laughs) Next up, we have Hellions number 14, which continues to be so Hellions. If you've been reading this series, you know exactly what that means, but I love it a ton. The team has sort of found themselves in a, I don't know, like I I keep saying, just like the most Hellions place where it's just like in between a rock and a hard place. They have a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells trying to come up with answers for things. Sort of all of the answers they can come up with are bad, (laughs) but it's like trying to find the least bad one. It's great. I love it so much. I also want to give a quick shout out to Inhyuk Lee, who's been doing some uh, variant covers. Incredible cover artist, but some of these variants this week in particular, I think are really cool. Yeah. All right. We have Savage Avengers number 23. It's just so friggin' good. And I think we talked about this last time we had a Savage Avengers, like, The story that they're telling feels like the biggest Marvel Universe event, and it's encapsulated in each issue of Savage Avengers. It is Kulangoth, the wizard, evil, immortal, horrifying wizard, just slowly working his way to taking over the planet. Like he's poisoned all the Savage Avengers, and it's like Doctor Strange is playing, you know, six dimensional chess with him. At one point, Doctor Strange takes a small skull that has a small essence of the monster Shuma Garoth, and he puts it in a microwave to explode it. And then he goes to actually talk to Shuma Garoth. You get a fun little bit where Dr. Strange gives a cupcake to man thing and Conan is in there and it's wild. Like this book is so off the wall, absolutely bonkers Every issue is the treat. Patch Zercher doing some incredible grisly work. Every issue, Jerry Duggan, 
you can tell this is one of the most fun books that he writes, and he has a lot of fun writing his comics. This is pure, pure fun. Next up, we have Silk number five. It's been a really, really, really fun limited series. This one, my pullist kissed word goes to getting emotional over Cindy Moon stories, which is what this one was doing to me. I just love that character so much. This has been, I think, just such a concise, so much action, so much emotion, so much good stuff just in general packed into these five issues. It's really, really cool. So shout out to Maureen Gu, the writer, who I think really crushed this. I've been having a ball with this series, and this is the one where I'm starting to be like, you're making me emotional here just with my love for this character, with what's going on with her and all that kind of good stuff. So really, really, really wonderful issue and and a wonderful five-issue limited series of Cindy Moon Silk. We've got Sinister War number two this week. My pull list kissed moment for this issue is to the Superior Foes of Spider-Man reunion. Uh, just loved Superior Foes. Great book in here. You've got Shocker and Hydro-Man. Maybe the greatest character whose first name is Morris <laughs> in all of Marvel Comics. If there's someone better, tweet me at Agent M. I want to know. Yeah, I love Superior Foes a ton. Oh, yeah. All right. Now some metal badass stuff coming in Spirits of Vengeance, Spirit Rider, number one. This is the story of the Demon Rider, a.k.a. Kushala, who is this sort of mystical character combined with, obviously, this sort of Ghost Rider side of things. Um, It's a really, really unique story. It really, really fell, I think, wonderfully into the vein of stories that we've come to know and expect from Taboo and B. Earl, who are the writers. But look, I'm a Ghost Rider fan, and I really, really enjoy a different and unique take on that entire dynamic like we get in here. And they dive into it. You get right into the mythology, right into the mythos, right into the backstory, right into the like super jet engine fuel of what makes this character tick and go. And um, yeah, I I just want to see a different kind of Ghost Rider story every single week. This is great. All right, it's time for the Star Wars portion of the show. We've got Star Wars Bounty Hunters number 15. Right off the bat, my pull list kissed award goes to cover artist Giuseppe Gamancoli. Look, give me camo back doing anything at Marvel, and I am into it. One of my favorite people in comics, one of my favorite artists in comics. I love camo. I also love Ethan Sachs, who's terrific, wonderful dude, great writer. In this one, you've got Canto Bite, and you've got uh, Dengar and Valance, and what more could you want? Oh, yeah. Speaking of the War of the Bounty Hunters crossover that's going on right now, this next issue is one I've had my eye on for a while, and that's because it stars Forlom and Zuckus, Two of the more esoteric Star Wars involved type people around and immediately right off the bat, if you're a Star Wars fan, if you know just a little bit about these characters, you you immediately enter the story and go, how the heck is this creative team going to make me invest in these characters? But as they get involved in here and what happens with them, it's like simultaneously so great and so absurd and so wonderful. It's sort of that perfect mixture of Star Wars stuff. And I think it's Star Wars comics in particular where you're in it, you're right alongside them, you are right there. But if you like stop for any moment, you zoom out and you go, wait a second, why am I so invested in these dudes? And yet you are um, more great stuff coming your way with War of the Bounty Hunters. 
Yeah. All right, we've got the Trials of Ultraman number five. This wraps up this limited series, but I want to give my Polis Kissed award to the final moments of the book, which for uh, Ultraman fans, it's just some intense stuff here. It leads into the next Ultraman limited series, which is the Mystery of Ultra 7 coming in 2022. So hold on to your booties and wait for that to come real soon. All right, next up we have Web of Spider-Man number three. My pull list kissed award goes to two characters in here in particular, two characters I love and two characters that I love to see alongside Spidey. In this case, on a plane to Paris where some hijinks are going to ensue. And those two characters are Dorian Green, a.k.a. Squirrel Girl, and Lunella Lafayette, a.k.a. Moon Girl, two of the best around I would sign up for a book that just has Pete and Doreen. I would sign up for a book that just has Pete and Lunella. But all three of them together, plus some other stuff going on, it is just a delight. You mix these things all together, and I am signing up every single time. Yeah. All right, our final new issue for this week is X-Men number two. It's gorgeous and wonderful. Of of course, Jerry Duggan with Pepe Larraz and Marte Gracia coming, bringing the heat. It's weird. It's got a space casino that is trying to basically put up bets on who and what can destroy the planet Earth and the X-Men having to fight against that. So you get the annihilation wave weaponized in Kansas. But I think my pullist kissed I don't even want to call it moment, but Polis Kiss thing about this issue is the way the characters team up together. The X-Men feeling like a superhero team working closely together, combining their abilities, dug the crap out of that. But there's also some really intense, scary stuff happening in the background. And the last couple of pages here, you're like, oh, of course, it's a modern <laughs> X-Men book. Everything is going to go horrible for every character you love. <laughs> And I mean that in the best way possible. I mean that from a story perspective, they're going to be hurt and it's going to make for great comic books. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, Jerry's just stabbing all of our favorite characters (laughs) gleefully and it's making great comics. Oh yeah, really good stuff. Now we look over to the collections this week and there's a bunch of X-Men stuff of the contemporary X-Men books that are hitting collection. We have Excalibur, we have Hellions, Marauders, New Mutants. We also, I will definitely want to point out Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood. That's a treasury edition. So that is going to be beautiful. Over on Marvel Unlimited, some great, great books. Issue two of Beta Ray Bill, issue 10 of Cable, issue six of Black Widow, Issue four of Modoc Head Games. What is this week? It's so damn good. Get in on Marvel Unlimited. Subscribe right now. You know you have to. If you're not, <laughs> come on. Who are you? Uh, and some of the books that you can read on Marvel Unlimited are part of our discussion with our reading club this week. Tucker, remind us once again, what's our reading club? We are talking to Ralph Macchio, Marvel mainstay of many years and someone who was closely, closely involved in the creation of What If Comics across those years. We're sort of touching on issues 311, 39, 40, and 43, so you can check those out on MU. And I want to be clear that when Tucker says 311, that means issues three and issues 11, not the special what if issue focused on three the comma band 11. 311. <laughs> 
but uh, it's really just a springboard to a bigger what if conversation and some really cool conversations about rubbing elbows with, you know, some of the greatest legends ever in Marvel history. So a really great time with a delightful person. Let's go talk to Ralph Macchio. Tucker, Chet, Marcus, get ready because we are about to dive into universes unknown and known and beyond with our guest for this reading club, legendary Marvel personality, Ralph Macchio. Ralph, thank you for joining the show. How are you? It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Where are you at? I'm here in uh, Creskill, New Jersey, where I've been for many, many decades. Ah, nice. As a New Jersey boy myself, I got to ask. Did you grow up in New Jersey, and was that where you first started to pick up comics and, and get into it? Yes. Um, my family did live uh, until I was in about second grade in uh, Sunnyside, Queens. And then my father's business, which was a uh, furniture-moving company called Macray Movers, he began to do well. And uh, as so many other people did during the uh, late 50s and early 60s, the uh, inevitable move to the suburbs came, and uh, we moved to Creskill. My comics reading experience actually began when I attended Rockley Day Camp. I remember that many of the kids were pulling out, out of their cubby holes, comics. But back then, this was actually pre-Marvel. So they were pulling out the uh, old Mort Weisinger and Julie Schwartz comics, the Justice League, Green Lantern, uh, all of the Mort Weisinger Superman titles and all. And I got involved with it. And from that point on, it became really, you know, my my lifetime uh, obsession, and that's how I got into it. Ralph, how'd you get linked up with Marvel? When did you start? Uh, Nineteen seventy-six, but I was actually hanging around Marvel for a year or two before that. I was not a convention goer or um, anything like that, but I did attend one convention in New York. I think it was seventy-four, seventy-five, or something, and it was a Marvel convention. And I remember I was actually in there and I got Jack Kirby's signature on some uh, Thor comics. And uh, it was it was just a fascinating thing to wander around because it was a completely new thing to me. And then as I was about to leave the convention, I heard somebody mention uh, the Black Panther. And I turned my head and I saw somebody behind a desk out in the lobby area. And I went over there and I mentioned my name to him to see if I could get a Black Panther book signed. And it was Don McGregor. And he mentioned that he knew of me because he was a devoted reader of all the fan mail that came in. So he, he said, look, hang around, man. He Hang around. Uh, he says, I'll, I'll bring you up to Marvel afterwards. He goes, you know, we'll go back in the convention. I'll introduce you to some people. I'll take you up to Marvel. So I wasn't doing anything. And I said, sure, I'll hang around. And he took me back in, the nicest guy in the world. And then eventually took me up to Marvel for a tour. And I met Chris Claremont up there. And he also remembered that I had written a lot of letters to the X-Men because that was the thing that I was doing at that time. And he asked if I wanted to interview Roy Thomas for Foom, which was uh, back then was the Marvel fan magazine. So I said, I can come in on Fridays to meet Roy because that's when Roy was coming in. And it wound up that I kept coming in on, on different Fridays, but I wasn't able to interview Roy because he was so busy. But I was hanging around Marvel, so I got to meet a lot of people up there. And uh, I also was able to use my family's moving company uh, credentials as sort of a bargaining thing because... Almost everybody lived that was in comics in the New York area, and everybody was moving. They were moving from apartments from Queens into Brooklyn and all that, and I would help them out. 
and I continued to get friendly with everybody. And eventually a position opened up when Archie Goodwin was promoted as editor-in-chief. And John Warner, who I'd also gotten very friendly with, was promoted as editor of the Black and White magazines. And he asked me if I wanted to come on. These were things I was not advocating for. I wasn't jumping up and down. I had planned to go into teaching English. And so I said, you know what, while I continue my graduate studies, I'll just come up to Marvel and I'll work as an assistant. And uh, I got the job as his assistant. I think it was April of 76. And really, I was there ever since. I left the staff full time in 2011, having been there for 35 years. But I continued my connection to Marvel. And the relationship has continued uh, right until today. So that's been about 40-something years now. That's amazing. Wow. I love it. Over the course of those 35 years, obviously, you worked on an untold number of books, of stories, characters, etc. Today, we're talking about some what-if books and what-if in general. When we mentioned the name what-if, what comes to mind for you? Like, is there a specific era, a specific colleague, a specific person or character that comes to mind when we talk about these books in particular? For me, the first name that comes to mind really is Roy Thomas, because it was Roy who kind of brought the idea of the alternate worlds thing to Marvel. Um, If I remember correctly from things that Roy has said and that I've read, is that his inspiration was the the Julie Schwartz uh, edited Flash of Two Worlds. Um, in which at DC, Julie Schwartz kind of introduced the the concept of uh, parallel universes uh, occupying the same space but vibrating at different frequencies, which I understand was uh, part and parcel of science fiction at the time, but had nothing to do or was not a concept introduced yet in comics. And Julie Schwartz did that in The Flash of Two Worlds, and it caught on. And Roy, I know, was a huge fan of the Golden Age characters and even of the, the Silver Age DC characters. And he brought that concept over here, and I believe it became uh, What If? So that's the first name that comes to mind when I think of What If? Thinking about the time that you've explained I mean, when you started a Marvel and then looking at the launch of What If in you know 1977-ish, do you remember Roy sort of developing the project? Was there any trepidation of like, oh, this kind of alternate reality thing? Or was, were the staff like, yes, this is the kind of fun and, and cool stories that we, we want to tell? Yeah, I, I you know, was, was heavily involved in the, the black and white line at the time. But of course, I was on staff. I do recall people being very enthusiastic about the idea of doing something like this, because of course, everybody has an idea. You know, what if this had happened? What if that had not happened? Where would it have gone? And so the the idea of sort of uh, encapsulating that seemed to be something that everybody was, you know, on board for because everybody had a a what if in their head. Do you remember the pitch process for it? Was it certain things you liked the idea of? There were certain elements that you tried to keep in, you know, each story or something like that? Or was it really just, hey, I got this wacky idea. Let me explore it. And it was a green light from there. I can't speak to the to the Roy uh, edited issues at that time. I could I could only speak to you know, when I was editing it, but I can surmise that initially uh, Roy wanted to go uh, for the more commercial uh, characters, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, who, uh, which I believe were the characters that in, inhabited the early issues. So uh, he may not have had the exact idea for the Fantastic Four, what the divergent point would be. But I'm pretty sure that Roy was the one who then would you know, would initially establish, let's do the Fantastic Four, or let's do Spider-Man, let's 
let's make it the mainstream characters. Let's not go off on a, you know, a real tangent and use uh, second or third tier characters. When I took over What If, I was not really thinking in terms of commercial aspects that we had to use the FF or, or whatever, but I did know that you know, you probably would bring in a lot more readers if you did something, you know, like what happened if Gwen Stacy had not died or or what if Mary Jane never married Peter Park or something. You know, you have a much wider fan base for things like that. But also it would be fun to do, you know, more obscure things. Um, we did a Doctor Strange with Peter Gillis. What if Doctor Strange had not become master of the mystic arts? We get the Doctor Strange devotees in there and uh, we could explore um, the ramifications of that decision. I'm glad you brought up that issue because that's one that we'll be talking about this episode. And I was like, man, if you put this out today, people would be really into it. It's got a lot of gravitas. The art was beautiful. Peter, Peter's great. I, I love his his run on What If. Uh, he's done a bunch of stories. Yes, yes. But I want to go back a little bit earlier because I was looking at the collection for What If, the collected edition. You had a great intro, and I suggest any of our listeners go pick up the What If Classic Complete Collection, Volume 1. has a great intro from you. And you mentioned a couple in there from that first volume, issue number three, what if the Avengers had never been? And what if uh, number 11, what if the original bullpen had become the Fantastic Four? I want to hone in first on number 11, because that's Jack Kirby doing a Fantastic Four story. And you're on staff at the time. Do you have any recollection of Jack coming back to Marvel? You know, it was it was interesting. It was just around the time that I was coming into Marvel he was beginning his, his second stint at Marvel in 1976. When Kirby came in and then did that what if, I think I remember Roy saying recently that when Kirby came back, he had actually spoken to Kirby about doing the FF on a regular basis. And Kirby would only do it with Roy if Roy gave him a panel by panel breakdown. And Roy said, you know, we really didn't want to do it that way. We wanted to kind of go back to the old way of doing it. So he bypassed Kirby and went to Rich Buckland and others. But with those what if, if I remember correctly, Roy said that originally when he spoke to Jack about it, Roy himself was supposed to be one of the members. And that Jack, without telling him, had substituted uh, Saul Brodsky for him. Hey, Roy gets a cameo in the book. He's there. He <laughs> shows right. up. He, he gets a little shine. <laughs> yes. But it was a great idea Roy had to get Jack to uh, to come back to do something with the FF, even if he couldn't get him back on the FF on a, on a regular basis. I get tingles listening to you talk about these stories because it means something to so many people. But to you, as someone who was working with these folks, it means something entirely different. And I was just curious if because you were a fan of Marvel Comics before you were at the point where you were interacting with these people on a, on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, was it difficult to kind of separate the fan Ralph from the professional Ralph? Or was that an easy switch? No, it was not an easy switch. It was difficult. And let me also state that to me, even when I correspond with Roy or remember Jack Kirby or Stan or any of those guys, I still consider them legendary figures. I remember getting to know Steve Gerber and going out with him and Dave Kraft and some of those other guys that would hang around up at Marvel, Doug Manchinal. And yes, they became your friends, but you also recognize that these were hugely talented people. I'm still in awe of them. And uh, I uh, just love working with them in, in any capacity. I think that's why we're all here. We're all big old lovers of Marvel. And I appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with us because part of what I'm so excited about is 
we're able to talk about what if because there's the Marvel Studios What If show coming to Disney Plus, which is giving a whole new spotlight to truly what is one of my favorite things that we do. It's just that sense of anything can happen, anything can go wrong. And when we're talking about, you know, issue number three is written by Jim Shooter before he was editor in chief while Archie was was the editor there. One of the things that, you know, struck me rereading this one is it's early on and the death of characters, that sense of dread and sadness that can permeate a lot of these what-if stories was right there from the beginning in this issue. And spoilers for our listeners, you should be reading these books. We have them listed all uh, everywhere <laughs> before we get into them, so there are spoilers ahead. But in issue number three, it's, you know, what if the Avengers had never been? And, you know, Iron Man is fighting for his life against Hulk and, and Namor, and um, he gets a little help, but he doesn't have his Avengers. And by the end of the story, you know, he doesn't make it through. Do you remember if there was a sense from the the creators, even when we get into your books, that like the death of a character or the sort of darker side of things was more fun or more sort of room to play in than a normal Marvel story? Well, yes, because you could take out major characters back then. And that was kind of, uh, you know, at that time, it wasn't so much unheard of. It just was rarely used. Today, when a character dies, I think we've all become kind of cynical to, well, okay, how long is he going to be dead for? Back then, that was not the case. But what if was an opportunity to do something? I mean, you did have Gwen Stacy later, uh, and again, a huge deal. But when you had the opportunity to do a really good story, and you could have the drama of the death of a major character, that was a big deal. And Jim did it very dramatically and very effectively, and with the brilliant art of Gil Kane and Klaus. It worked beautifully. You're talking about great artists, and I'm looking at two of the issues we chose to chat about actually feature Conan. There are two issues you edited, issues 39 and 43. 39 is what if Thor battled Conan, and it's penciled by Ron Wilson, who I think is so underrated. Yes. Like, you look at the cover, and then you look at the first big splash page right in there, and it is stunning work. And then over on 43... You have one of the most memorable covers for What If by Bill Sienkiewicz, which is that sort of painted cover of Conan with the gun. It's um, it's stunning stuff. For you as an editor, do you remember the process of choosing the artists and the sort of the, the vibe you want to get from these alternate reality tales? The first one, 39, Alan Zelenitz and I kind of bonded about a lot of the stuff in comics. We had very similar views on the characters. We loved the Conan and particularly the Cull stuff. I worked with Alan on a a Cull comic for a long time. So when it came to doing things with Conan or Cull or or, uh, Thor even, because uh, I remember the Raven Banner that uh, I had Alan Zelenitz do, which became a graphic novel, Alan would either come to me or I'd give Alan a call and say, you know, what do you think, Alan? And he, I'm pretty sure, is the guy who uh, came up with the idea for it, and I thought, yeah, it's a great idea. Ron Wilson, for example, is pencil, as you said, very underrated. Mark Grunewald and I worked closely with Ron on a number of issues of Marvel 2-in-1, because following the Project Pegasus storyline, we stayed on the book for a while. And Ron came on board, and he was our regular penciler. Um, he would had done uh, Marvel 2-in-1 for a while before we were on the book, and then uh, came on and stayed with us. And he had a great grasp of how to do action sequences and Kirby-esque kind of big explosions and all. 
and he was a sweet guy. He was he was always willing to do any redrawing if something didn't quite work out. And then later on, I put him on the Hulk color magazine when we were doing stories that were kind of based on the television version of the Hulk, where we didn't have supervillains going up against the Hulk. We tried to do more human interest stories. And Ron, if you go back and look at those issues, his art began to take on another dimension altogether. But yes, he was he was certainly you know, probably my first choice to do this. And, um, you know, George Rousseau's, of course, one of the greats from the uh, the earliest days in comics. Janice Chang was someone as letterer that I, I knew. And, you know, Mike Mignola, of course, Mike, you know, you know, became something very, very special later on. So, and Danny Bolinardi, I worked with Danny very closely on a lot of things. He uh, inked Captain America when I was editing that for a long time. So Danny was uh, as uh, reliable a guy as you could ever ask for. So that came together nicely, and, and Alan and I just were very intrigued by the idea of uh, what would have happened if Thor had battled Conan. Well, I think about Conan with you specifically because you wrote a great one-page Conan story for Marvel Comics 1000 alongside oh, yeah. <laughs> Marco Cucchetto, which was so cool. I really just loved seeing your writing paired with one of the great current Marvel artists out there. And I thought that was just a really, really fun and well put together page to commemorate for listeners as Marvel Comics 1000 did the history of Marvel Comics. And, and that page was to celebrate 1970, which is when Conan joined the Marvel line. Is there something about Conan the Barbarian in particular that you really enjoy? I mean, that's a character that you've had a connection to. Obviously, we talked about What If, number 39. and is That's a character that, um, among many, obviously, that's a Rarity Howard creation outside of the Marvel Universe. But is there something specific about Conan that you really enjoy? Well, let me, first, let me tell you, thank you for the compliment about that one-pager. Uh, when I was up in the office, uh, Tom Brevoort said, Ralph, why don't you do this uh, Conan page? Because I was uh, consulting editing on all the Conan titles at the time. And I said, sure, I'll do it. But just a one page Conan story. What happened was after it got all written and lettered, I looked at it and I asked Tom if I could completely rewrite that page because I said, you know what? The artwork is beautiful and my balloons are covering it all up. So I actually rewrote that page completely to make sure that we could see the people and, and the stuff that was going on there. So that was rewritten. But again, I, I was happy with the way it ultimately came out. Regarding the other stuff, yes, I've always been a Howard aficionado. I I've, I've remember reading some of the Conan stuff or looking at it in the, I guess it would be the Lancer paperbacks with those fantastic Frazetta covers and reading some of that stuff and just being taken into this Hyborian age. It was incredible. And when I was able to work with Roy, of course, I became his East Coast liaison on the Conan material. Prior to that, I had been a huge fan of Barry Smith's work on Conan, watching him develop as an artist on that book, and then seeing what John Buscema did afterwards, and then getting a chance to actually work on Savage Sword of Conan. And it wasn't only Conan. Again, I also loved Cull because I remember the Marie Severin, John Severin issues that Jerry Conway had written way back when. And I just loved Volusia, and I loved those court intrigue stories and that beautiful artwork of Marie and John Severin and, and Conway's stories. So I became a fan as well of that. And also, I'm a huge fan of Solomon Kane and have written a good number of Solomon Kane stories too. Uh, they recently did a, a collection, a hardcover collection at Marvel of all the Solomon Kane stories that have been done and all the ones that I had written were in there. I remember talking to Carl Potts, who was the editor on those books. I said, you know what? I love 
Solomon Kane so much that I just don't want to do adaptations. I want to do some original stories. And so he gave me the go-ahead for me to write several original Solomon Kane stories. And I'm very proud of those. One of them was drawn by Mike Mignola. And it was a great deal of fun to take Solomon Kane in a direction that he hadn't been in before. I, this was like a what-if kind of a thing. I sort of postulated, well, what if Solomon Kane, who was this absolutely devoted Christian, what if he'd encountered someone who had lost his faith? How would Cain react to that? So that was kind of a what-if scenario. And the, the second one was, the one I did with Mike Mignola, was I, I had this idea of what if Solomon Cain was to encounter a character who was as devoted to Allah as he was devoted to Yahweh, to the Christian God? And that became uh, the prophet. So again, that was also kind of a what-if scenarios. That was a great deal of fun. But yes, I, I gravitated towards those characters, not just Conan, but also Cull and Solomon Cain in particular. Mm-hmm. One last thing about on the Conan side of things, what I found extra fun diving into 43 and reminds me of an issue from the second volume of What If, the one that I sort of grew up reading off the rack, is... Conan transported into the Marvel Universe. One of the fun things that I think Tucker and I are exploring, you know, as we think about a lot of what if stories is how many of these what if stories sort of have relevancy to things that actually ended up happening in Marvel Comics over the years. You know, Conan coming to the 20th century. Now we have Conan and Savage Avengers, and he's fighting, you know, Kool and Goth, <laughs> all, you know, alongside Wolverine and, and Venom. And, That's right. And we see all these stories. And so it's, I loved this other Conan story as well, because seeing him up against Captain America by the end and, and sort of how he would fit into a modern Marvel universe, there's meat on those bones that obviously, as we see nowadays, too. Yes. And if I recall correctly, when I had written that introduction, to one of the What If collections, I think I had mentioned in there some of the things that had had been in the, um, the What If stories that eventually wound up finding their place in the Marvel Universe. It's fascinating. It's also interesting, too, something I, I wanted to bring up was as I was rereading that introduction that I'd written, I remember mentioning the idea of uh, Hugh Everett's Many Worlds concept in um, quantum mechanics. Hugh Everett's idea of this sort of parallel worlds thing, that every time a decision is made or a quantum measurement is done, the world kind of splits, and there are two versions of you. If you flip a coin, it's not as if it can only come down one way, and according to Hugh Everett, the uh, wave function of the universe goes on, the Schrodinger equation is you know, just uh, followed through, and there's no collapse of the wave function, as you have in the Copenhagen interpretation. It's just the world splits. And I remember uh, mentioning that in the, the What If uh, intro. And then just recently, I finished reading a book by Sean Carroll, who's one of those great popularizers of uh, current science. Uh, it's a book called Something Deeply Hidden. And it's where he really takes the Everett position that of all of the ways of dealing with quantum mechanics, the simplest, the most direct, and the one that seems to be gaining the most traction is the Everett idea of the parallel worlds when decisions are made. And of course, he goes into it much greater depth, but it does seem to be that is something that works. So uh, that, that interesting science, that real world science comes into play really in these, in these what if things where decisions are made and 
things split off from uh, what you consider the mainstream and they branch out. It's funny you mention that because something I've been thinking about as we've been having this conversation around what ifs is as you look back on those 35 years that you spent at Marvel, are there any notable real world what if situations that come to mind where you mentioned it at the top of the show, Roy, I believe you said, wanted Jack for FF, but Jack wanted to do something and it just didn't quite work out. Are there stories like that that spring to mind where you go, I wonder what that universe would have been like if that little decision had gone a different way, whether that was with one of your colleagues, a creator, a character, something that was maybe in the works, but maybe didn't quite end up going the way it had been thought of or planned originally, and maybe ended up being totally successful in another realm in another way. But uh, there's a still uh, what if question there in the real world. Does that does that strike a chord? Uh, it certainly does. I could tell you that for me, the biggest what if, what if I had not heard Don McGregor yell out something about the Black Panther? And what if I had pushed through that door because I was at the door? It was only hearing that, that word, you know, Black Panther, those two words that had me turn around. I was done with the convention. I was going back out. I was going home to New Jersey and I was going back to my graduate studies. Uh, and I wondered what would my universe have been like had I pushed through that door? I was not, you know, at that point ever thinking about coming on staff at Marvel. That never entered my thinking. I was just, uh, you know, doing my graduate work, thinking about getting a job uh, as an English teacher. And what about Ditko? What if he and Stan had not had the falling out that occurred, which, you know, there are a million bits of speculation on. And what if Ditko had stayed with Spider-Man? What would that have meant for the Marvel Universe as a whole? Where would that character have gone, the flagship character? What if Mark Grunewald had not died? Mm. Uh, you know, Mark and I were um, very, very close as friends. Um, and I helped him get his job up at Marvel because he'd come from the Midwest. And he was, you know, a huge comics fan. And you know, talk about a guy who was into parallel worlds and alternate universes. I mean, he was he was working on, on an editing a, a, I would hesitate to call it a fanzine. It was kind of a magazine thing called Omniverse with his father. And they were doing all sorts of crazy stuff with parallel worlds, uh, you know, worlds in which Tarzan existed alongside Sherlock Holmes and all. So Mark was very, very into this. And I often wonder, what would Marvel have been like had Mark Grunewald not died? What would my career have been like because Mark and I were so close on so many things, and where would that have gone? So I, I do speculate on that. What if Archie Goodwin had not left the editor-in-chief position? What if he had stayed Jim Shooter had never come on? How different would Marvel have been? Because Jim really restructured the entire place when he came in. How would Marvel have uh, weathered the rest of the 70s if uh, Jim had not become editor-in-chief? So yes, I think uh, about that and speculate on that. What if Roy Thomas had not left to go to the coast, because when I was coming to interview him, he was still vacillating about whether to come back as editor-in-chief or whether to go to the West Coast. And had Roy come in as editor-in-chief, Archie Goodwin would not have been promoted to editor-in-chief. John Warner would not have become the editor of the black and white line, and I would not have been hired as his assistant. If Roy had stayed or had come back as editor-in-chief and the rest of the positions had frozen in place for a while, would I not have gotten my job at Marvel? So, yep, those are the, the what-ifs that I definitely spent a lot of time considering. In an alternate universe, there's 
Ryan and Tucker are interviewing Professor Ralph uh, about <laughs> in, and about <laughs> the world of literature and English. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be talking about a lot of stuff that, that fascinated me in literature, such as what if we hadn't lost most of the Greek masterpieces? I was always a, a huge fan of the, uh, the Greek classics. You know, what if the Library of Alexandria had not burned down? How would our view of literature and the Greeks and things been different? What if Democritus's uh, works had survived? Um, you know, we only have what what people said that he said uh, about the atom and you know other related scientific things. So there are what ifs there, even with uh, with literature. You're making me want to have you back just to talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ralph, we'll, honestly, eventually we're going to have to have you back, especially um, to talk about Mark Grunwald and his work. Uh, I, I recently convinced our producer Jasmine to read Squadron Supreme for the first time, um, which she was in love with, naturally, because it's great. And we we did a whole episode about some Captain America stuff that uh, you worked on with Mark, um, but that's for another time. I, I before we let you go, I know we we had thrown some issues at you for this conversation about what if, and you had said, oh, let's also talk about issue number forty, which is the what if Doctor Strange had never become master of the mystic arts. I know we're going to dive into it with Peter B. Gillis sometime soon on the show, but uh, why do you want to bring this Good. one up? Yes, Peter and I were uh, were. We're friends since, you know, since we were fans. Uh, we were used to hang out together and, and such. And uh, Peter and I also were very similar in our views on Marvel and things. And, and again, we naturally bonded. When I was doing a follow-up Eternal series, uh, I put Peter on as the writer. And Peter is an incredibly intelligent guy. Any subject you talk to him about, Peter will have in, incredibly interesting opinions, thoughts, and insights on. Really, really a brilliant guy. And I don't use that word loosely. Truly a brilliant guy. But with uh, Doctor Strange, I've been going back and forth because I don't have the comics handy, but I can't remember if putting Jackson Geis on that was a precursor to me putting him on the book with Roy Thomas or whether he had done the book already with Roy and I thought of him for the what if. I honestly, I think it was the former. And one of the things that he wanted to do was because it was Dr. Strange, he had asked me if he could do all of these color overlays for the spells. He wanted to drop the black lines. He wanted to play around with color. If you flip through that issue, you'll see that um, there's a lot of sort of hallucinogenic pyrotechnic stuff when it comes to the spells and to Doctor Strange's world. And I said, you know, it's great. If there's ever a character that's, that's up for that sort of visual treatment, I said it would be Doctor Strange. So I said, just, just go you know, full bore on that, Jackson, and, and have fun. And of course, Peter came up with a great story premise and uh, you know, did a fantastic, brilliant job on the, on the issue. So I was very proud of that. And also having been such a fan of Doctor Strange, who was never... Uh, when I say A-list, I don't mean in terms of genius. I mean in terms of popularity. Uh, Doc Strange was never an A-list character, but to give him the what-if treatment with uh, top people was something that I, I was very proud of and, and happy that we could do. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the spells because those look unlike anything else from the time to my eyes. I like I still to this day it looks. This is one of the the like prettiest most gorgeous issues of the run and then some of those effects it, it look it almost looks like computer graphics it's so cool and so trippy yeah absolutely right and of course i give full credit to jackson that was nothing that i asked for 
This was totally his idea. He wanted to go in and he wanted to play. And again, we did not have the computer generated stuff at the time, you know, it just had not existed. So all of that stuff was kind of done manually with color overlays and, and removing the black lines and things. So it was all Jackson and it was all an arduous task to do that. But, you know, he was devoted to making the book look as visually stunning as he possibly could, which he did. And uh, Peter played right into that too, giving him plenty of opportunity with the spells and the battles. And, and also, you know, we had a chance to do Mordo and I think Dormammu may have popped up in there. So it was, uh, it was great to see an artist, you know, really coming into his own and, and finding the visual possibilities in Doctor Strange and his world and Peter giving him the source material to play with. So for me, it was just a great ride to just sit there and say, okay, you guys go to town on this thing. And when this, when the stuff came in, I couldn't have been happier. And, and again, very, very proud of that issue. I'm, I'm glad that even looking through it today, you, you find it uh, sort of almost contemporary in the, in the kind of effects that were used. Amazing. Well, speaking of great rides, uh, Ralph, this has been an absolute joy, a genuine pleasure. We talked about the big figures of Marvel history. So to have one of them with us today with you was a true joy. And our listeners didn't just get a, a bit of Marvel history. They got a bit of ancient literature, a little bit of science in there as well. <laughs> Their cup overfloweth today with uh, good stuff. So thank you so much, Ralph, for joining us. This is really, really, really wonderful to talk to you. It's a pleasure. I, I, I thank you for, for listing me among the big figures of Marvel, but, but truthfully, my heart, I, I know I'm not. I'm a guy who, who loves comics. I made a little bit of a contribution, you know, here and there. I, I think as an editor, I was able to, to try to get really good stuff out of very talented people, people who are much, much more talented than I was. So uh, I, I thank you for including me in that pantheon, but I, I honestly don't think I, I'm, I'm really up there. But uh, I, I did love comics, and I continue to, to enjoy it. Thank you, Ralph. Okay, a pleasure, Thanks, guys. Ralph. Thank you. Let's do it again. We'd love to. Big thanks once again to rascally Ralph Macchio for coming on the show. Uh, one thing we wanted to point out, that issues 39 and 43 of our discussion with him from What If, that first volume, are not available on Marvel Unlimited right now. Those are both Conan-focused issues, as we've talked about in this episode. Uh, you can read them in the collected editions. We have the complete collections of What If. You can get those at your local comic shop. Those are both in volume four. Uh, you can also read them in the collected editions. And I think you can also just buy the single issue on the Marvel app or on Comixology. So they're definitely easy to obtain. They are just not currently on MU. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And I've often heard him say, what if our hands were our feet and our feet were our hands? And then we point them to Beast and we say that's sort of a like there's plenty of comics that kind of like explore that concept a little bit but he's never satisfied with it he has all these sort of Frankensteinian ideas it's disturbing classic Brad <laughs> I'm Ryan I'm Tucker this is Marvel your universe <laughs>